few months ago, in my reading, I can admit it was on social media, I came across a story of great injustice that, that really impacted me. There, there was a man in the U.S. who was wrongfully convicted of first-degree murder. His name is Raymond Flanks. There's no mistake made in his case. Now, I, I imagine there are times where there's an innocent mistake, something that's been overlooked, and, and a person goes to jail. I imagine that happens. We're humans, and that's, that shouldn't be too uncommon. But in this case, the prosecuting attorney withheld evidences that proved Mr. Flank's innocence. He knew he was innocent, but still worked to prosecute and imprison him. He was given a life sentence in the year 1983. Now, that's the year I was born. An innocent man was in jail for my entire lifetime. That's why this story stuck with me. Now, the reason his story was in the news is because he was just released a few months ago from jail. Actually, uh, the, the story is that 10 years ago or so, after years of asking, he was permitted to finally see his case file. There he found out that there was evidence that proved his innocence, like without a doubt. But it still took those 10 years for him to get a case and for them to overturn it. Uh, now what impacted me more than to think of someone spending my entire lifetime in jail for a crime they didn't commit was that Mr. Flanks forgave the attorney who intentionally hid evidence of his innocence. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, I wasn't here because I was at a pastor's event uh, in the U.S. That's why I wasn't here with you last Sunday. Uh, and I was surprised to see Mr. Flanks there for one of the sessions sharing his story. He shared about how he came to faith in prison. And as a response to the forgiveness he found in Christ, he was compelled to forgive the person who wronged him the most. He understood that he couldn't keep hating the man who ruined his life because he now has new and true life in Jesus. He recognized that the world is broken, that we are all sinners. It's such a powerful story to read and also to hear it from his own lips. Stories of great forgiveness always have such an impact, don't we? Don't they? I think it's because we can connect with them. We know what it's like to be wronged. We also know what it's like to wrong someone. And we know what it's like to receive forgiveness. Now, as we continue in our series on the parables, as found in the Gospel of Luke, we will consider another story of great forgiveness this morning. Now, there's no sermon outline. If you're with us, usually I'll give you an outline so for those note-takers you're able to follow along. But our passage is a narrative. It's, it's a story. So we're just going to follow along with this story, but, but I do want to give a bit of context to help us understand what's happening. We're in Luke chapter 7 this morning, uh, and at this point, uh, Jesus is in the middle of his public ministry. Uh, what that means is that the Pharisees, who we're going to read about, who were the religious leaders of the day, have interacted with Jesus several times before this point, and they have already made up their minds about Jesus. They're against him. They hated Jesus and they hated his message because he came against their self-righteousness. He preached a message of grace, a message of salvation. They hated the types of people he interact interacted with. 
tax collectors, drunks, lepers, outcasts, anyone who you think was the, kind of the, the, the low lives of society, Jesus was with them, and he, they hated him for that. And even in context, uh, the verse uh, right before, two verses right before the passage that we're in this morning, they label Jesus a friend of sinners, and, and they don't mean that in a good way. Now, as we look at this story and this parable, the main point will be clear to us, and so let me give it to you now. Great love comes from great forgiveness. Great love comes from great forgiveness. It's going to be simple to see. It's fairly simple to understand. But we'll be challenged this morning as we apply God's word and his teaching to our lives. And so with that brief introduction, let's pray and ask for God's help as we go to his word. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we, we thank you for making yourself known to us. And we recognize once again this morning that unless you open our eyes to see you, we would never look. Unless you gave us your word, we would not know who you are. And so we pray this morning that you would speak to us again through your word as you are faithful to do. For those who are weary and burdened, Father, would they find rest in you today? For those who are convicted of sin, stuck in sin, Father, through your spirit, would you convict them in the way that only you know how? For those who don't know Jesus as a son of God who is born to die so that we would have life, Father, would you let them see Jesus as the Savior of their world? We pray these things in his name. Amen. Look with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39. It's in your bulletin, or you can follow along on the screen. Or, of course, if, if you have your Bible with you, uh, you're welcome to open it up. Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Now before we get into the parable and into Christ's teaching, I want to make sure that we understand the scene and know who the characters are. Now our story is set, as we read, in the house of a Pharisee. There are three main characters that are introduced. We have Jesus, the Pharisee, and the woman. And the scene is wild, right? That, that's what we just read. It's, it's a respectable dinner at the house of one of the religious leaders, and in comes a woman with big emotions and makes a big scene, doesn't she? Now, to try to capture the mood of the story, right? There, there's a mood to help us understand what's happening. Imagine with me someone right now bursting through those back doors into the sanctuary. They run up to me, jump to my feet, take off my shoes, and pour perfume on them. How would you feel? Slightly to extremely uncomfortable. Especially if I just would go on as if this was normal. 
For those guests, this is what we do every Sunday morning, right? Someone comes in and anoints my feet, right? No. Um, <clears throat> you'd be shocked. In shock. It, it, for that to happen, it would be out of place for lots of reasons. But again, imagine it happening. You'd have so many thoughts going through your mind. Every one of you would be on edge wondering what's happening next. And that's, that's what's happening in our story. It's, it's a whole scene, right? An unexpected situation. Now, we also need to make sure that we know who our characters are. Because for those who are familiar with the Bible, your mind right away goes to Mary Magdalene and think that this is that story. Right, you hear the name Simon, and so quickly you'll associate this character with Simon Peter, the apostle. But our context tells us otherwise. The Pharisee in our story, <clears throat> excuse me, is named Simon. It's not Simon Peter, the apostle. And, and also, we, we don't know who this woman is. We're just told that she's a sinner. She's likely a prostitute based on the, the kind of the language and the tone of, of the words used. But even that's not perfectly clear. This is a totally different account than Mary Magdalene at Simon the leper's house. Now, you might be thinking this is a bit strange, that there are two separate accounts that are almost identical. But, but it doesn't have to be strange. For one, th there are common names in every culture and every age. I imagine if I told you that last week I went to uh, lunch with Tony and Michelle and we had shawarma. Now you might be wondering how I know your friends Tony and Michelle. Or maybe you're like, well, maybe there's another set of Tony and Michelle that he knows because that's a common name. It could be my father, whose name is Michelle, and his brother Tony. Right? There are popular and common names everywhere. It's, that shouldn't surprise us. Now, about the story being similar to another, I love what Spurgeon has to say about it. He says, we shouldn't be surprised that there are two stories like this. What should surprise us is that there aren't 2,000 stories of intense affection and adoration at the feet of Jesus. I think that's so good for us to think about. Now, while she's at Jesus' feet, we read that Simon speaks to himself, whether he kind of whispered or just kind of spoke in his own heart. These words, if he were a prophet... He would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And so for us, this is a glimpse at his heart. Right? We're able to see what he cared about. That he cared about the appearance of godly things, but in his heart, he had great judgment. He was judgmental towards Jesus. He was judgmental towards this woman. What he's thinking is, we all know, right, him and the other guests, the entire town, we all know what kind of woman she is. She's unclean. And again, when you think about the Jewish traditions at that time and even to this day, cleanliness is important. You have to separate yourself from certain people at certain times. And so he, there's no way he's a prophet if he doesn't even know that. And we all know this thing, right? Now, it's at this point of our story that Jesus breaks the silence. Look with me to verse 40. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Jesus replied to him. I, I love that Jesus answers the question that Simon thought to himself. We see that throughout Jesus' ministry, kind of answering the question behind the question, or speaking directly to the heart. That in and of itself should be enough proof to Simon that, that Jesus is no ordinary man. Right? That he is a prophet. That he is able to know things that others 
don't know that he is sent by God. But Simon has hardened his heart towards God. Let's keep reading. At this point, Jesus tells the parable, verses 41 and 43. A, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? In verse 43, Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Now, it's a pretty simple and straightforward parable, right? As we look through the parables, the ones that you've read, some are more detailed, some are more difficult to understand, but not this one. And so Simon's response is telling. For him to say, I suppose, shows that he doesn't really want to answer. He doesn't want to engage with Jesus on this point because I think he's picked up on what Jesus is teaching and this isn't a good look for, si for Simon. And so as we consider this parable, if you weren't with us for the introduction of this series, I, I mentioned one, one uh, fact of the parables. One, one thing that's important for us to know is that parables don't teach all truth. So not every doctrine of Christianity is going to be found in every single parable. No. Parables always have a primary point. Right? There's a reason that the parable is told, as we see in this passage. And again, for our sake, for this parable, our main point is great love comes from great forgiveness. The parable is clearly connected to what just happened. Three characters, right? One creditor, two debtors. Jesus, the woman, the Pharisee, we see the connections. We see why Jesus told this parable. And, and Jesus shows in the coming verses that what this nameless woman did was a response of love for receiving forgiveness from Jesus. Listen to verses 44 to 46. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So what's Jesus doing here? He's contrasting the woman's actions to Simon's inactions. And the contrasts are clear and direct. Right? The common courtesies of that time, uh, to, when, when someone enters your house, involve washing their feet, because most people were either no shoes or, or sandals, a kiss to greet the guest, and, and oil for the head as, as a way to, to bring rest and, and uh, reprieve from the sun that's outside. Simon denied Jesus all of these things, and yet he's criticizing this woman for the offering that she made, for the offering that she gave to Jesus. But as we consider the contrasts in this passage, it's not just a contrast of what she did and what he didn't do, but it's a contrast in the intensity and depth of her act of love. Not just water for feet, 
but tears from her heart. Not just a kiss of greeting, but repeated kisses on his feet, which express affection, respect, it expresses submission. Not just olive oil, which is a common household product, but expensive perfume poured out completely at his feet. And Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? Friends, this is so important for us. Simon obviously saw her, right? And what did he see? We're told, a sinner, an unclean woman who he thought was a hot mess, entering his home, ruining his dinner party. But Jesus is calling him to really see her, to see her heart, to see her nature. And so let me ask you, church, this morning, do you see each other rightly? Do you look at your brother and sister in Christ and see someone whom Christ loves and who would set free? Or, or do you see them by their skin color? By their nationality? By their income, whether their lack of or their, their high salary? When you look at one another, do you see them as someone who has more grievous sin than you do? Do you look down on them and judge them for any reason that Jesus doesn't? Now the answer is yes. We all do it to one degree or another, don't we? And we need to acknowledge that. We need to repent of our prejudices that we show one another. You see, these contrasts and comparison that Jesus points out are also a rebuke to Simon for his lack of love, right? It, it, that's what we see in this parable and in Jesus' explanation. Right? This woman's actions were a display of her love. It wasn't a way to get love. It wasn't expressing anything else. It was a display of her love. And it was a response to God's forgiveness. Now, we're not told directly in the text, but, but we can safely gather that there must have been some previous interaction between Jesus and this woman. We don't know when it was what exactly it was, but the parable supports it, and so do his words about forgiveness. Right? When Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven, these aren't words that he's uttered for the first time. Right? This isn't a first-time declaration, it's an assurance to her that your sins are forgiven. There's so much here that we can consider, but let's keep working through the text and then we'll take a moment afterwards to dig in deeper. Verse 49. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? So there's other guests. They're not the primary characters, but there's other people there. And they're watching and they're listening. Now I imagine some said it with judgment and sarcasm, right? As in, who does he think he is? You can't just say, I forgive your sins. And yet I, I think and hope that there are others there who are really asking, who is this man who can even forgive sins? Now in either case, a response to the claims that Jesus made is required. Both at that time and even now. Friend, you're not able to hear the, the wonderful news of Jesus 
the claims he made, and you saying, well, I won't, I'll pretend I've never heard those things. You, you, a response is forced. A, a response is required to say either, I don't know how, but I believe it, or there's no way that happened. Right? We, can't, we can't just be indifferent to Christ. That was the case for them too. Lastly, in verse 50, uh, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I, I think maybe the best way for us to really grasp the point of the story and the teaching of this parable is to ask a few questions. But first, let's keep the main point in front of us. Great love comes from great forgiveness. Great love comes from great forgiveness. And so we ask, are some people more forgiven than others? Is that what this parable is saying? Let's think about the parable again. The parable tells of two people who are in a debt that they can't get out of. Now, most workers at that time were day laborers. It's still common in all, all, all around the world, world, but more so then. They worked a day, and they got paid a wage for the day. It was a denarii as their daily wage. And so that gives us an image of a person who doesn't save up to buy a boat. They likely don't own their own home. Right? They're living day to day. And so it was just enough to barely live. And so as we think of that, one of the debtors owed nearly two months' worth of pay. Right? 50 denarii, nearly two months. The other nearly two years. Again, for a worker who made a daily wage, with this means it's impossible for either of these two debtors to pay off their debt. And so the end for both of them was, e was either prison or pardon. Now, when we think of this in spiritual terms, we can hear Paul's words from Romans chapter 3. As he wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Every one of us is a debtor to God. It's important for us to know that there are only two categories. We're either in debt or we have no debt. We're either holy or we are unholy. There's no saying, I am less holy than some people. Right? When it comes to our salvation, for when it comes to either you're saved or you're not saved, whether you're in the light or you're in the dark, if you're alive or you're dead, there, there's no I'm um, mostly dead or half alive. Right? All fall short of the glory of God. But, as one pastor said it, that hasn't kept us from comparing distances. I fell a little bit closer to God's glory. They're a lot farther back. What a condemnation of the way that we look at each other, isn't it? Rather than us look to Jesus and, and see our great need to be rescued, what we do is we compare our lives with one another, just as the Pharisee did with the woman. And when we say, I'm closer to God than her, that must count for something. We see that throughout the scriptures. We see it in our own lives. I don't have to prove this point to you. We know how we think of others. And so what we need to see is how impossible it is for us to be made right with God apart from His gracious forgiveness. Let me say that again. What we need to see is how impossible it is for us to be made right with God apart from His gracious forgiveness. Now our, our need for forgiveness is deeper than the ocean itself. But, but in our sin and our flesh, we have this incredible ability to say, we're not that bad. 
We're not like, fill in the blank, whether a person you know, whether a kind of person or nationality, whether a, a world criminal. We're not, not Hitler, bad. Right? We, we always have comparisons. But if someone else did the same things that you do and thought the things that you think, you would be horrified by them. But when you do it, there are plenty of excuses, aren't there? Friends, it's important for us to see that we extend so much grace to ourselves and withhold it from others. That is Simon the Pharisee. Now, Actually, if, if we are comparing, in this story, he is the worst sinner because he doesn't see his sin as, as being bad. He, he probably doesn't even think he sins, which means he, he doesn't need someone to save him. And therefore, again, the point of the parable is that he loved little. We heard that, right? Our love, based on this teaching, is an expression of gratitude for forgiveness. So if we want to flip it, sometimes for me it's, it's helpful for me to think of something the other way around to, uh, to understand it. So, right, our love is an expression of gratitude for forgiveness. If we flip that, we can say that if we don't feel love or we don't show much love for Christ, then we're not very grateful for what Jesus has done. That's what, what Jesus is saying. But how can that be? It's because we have a low view of sin and a low view of God. We have a low view of sin and a low view of God, and because of those two errors, Jesus doesn't seem all that important. But when we grow in our recognition of God's holiness and His perfection, we also grow in our awareness of sin. They, they, they work together. A greater understanding of God's holiness reveals, or should reveal, if we have the Spirit within us, a greater depth of our need, and a, a greater depth of our sin, an awareness of our sin. Uh, to help us understand this, let me, let me use two common examples that Jesus uses in his, in his preaching. Lust and anger. The law is clear that we're not to commit adultery, right? Do not commit adultery. And so we know that's wrong. Sex outside of marriage is sin. But as we grow in our, <clears throat> excuse me, understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. But as we grow in our understanding of God's heart and his purity and righteousness, Adultery alone, that, that final act, isn't alone what's grievous. So is pornography. So is looking with lust at a man or a woman. And even if we don't look, <clears throat> we're mindful that the thoughts in our hearts that are lustful are sinful. We start to see that it's not just the worst version of the sin itself that's wrong, but all of it. We grow in our awareness of sin. Same with anger. The Ten Commandments, this is even shorter of a command. Do not murder. Three words as opposed to the four, right? Do not murder. But Jesus connected murder to anger that's found within the heart. And so yelling and cursing and deep frustration, whether it's spoken or just boiling in our heart, friends, is sin. Dear Christian, we can only see the depth of our sin 
the more that we see the holiness of God. And then what happens? Jesus gets bigger. The, the cross is bigger. He becomes more beautiful to us. See, it's not that he grows in his loveliness because he's perfectly lovely, but he grows <clears throat> more lovely to us. We're not more saved or more forgiven because a dead person is a dead person. When we're dead in our sins, we're dead completely. But we recognize the depth of what he did to save us. We can look to the woman as our great example here. She understood that her sins were many. Everyone knew there were many, but she certainly felt the weight of it more than anyone else. And again, this is something we know, don't we? We know that to be true in our lives. And Charles Spurgeon has a great quote about this. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. How how dare they think that of me? Well, if we look in our heart just for a moment, not even a deep dive into our our burdens and our worries and our sins, but we, we realize we're much worse than they think, if only they knew. But Jesus forgave her. Jesus forgave her. A a powerful forgiveness, a a gracious and great forgiveness, a life-changing forgiveness. Dear friend, you need to know that's available to you. A, A forgiveness that will remove all of your guilt and all of your shame. How? He took it on himself. Your sin, your debt, your guilt, your shame, your burden. He died on the cross to pay it off. You see, in our parable, Jesus is the gracious creditor who's forgiven you. But like, like any debt, there must be a loss. Right? There must be a payment. For, for the creditor to forgive the debtor of their debt, two months worth of wages and two years worth of wages... He had to take it upon himself, right? It was his loss. It's the same for Jesus. For him to forgive you of the punishment and debt of your sin, he had to take it on himself. The death that we owed God for our sin, the Bible declares that Jesus died that death on the cross. That's the hope that we have. That's why we gather the truth of Christianity. And friends, this isn't an issue of two months' salary or two years' salary, but our very life, eternal life. Now, if we were to expand this parable and kind of keep going with it to really show what Christ did for us, we'd say that the creditor didn't only forgive this debt, 50 and 500, but he welcomed the debtor to share in his own riches. Where they don't have to borrow, they don't have to labor, they don't have to struggle. They can rest in the riches of this gracious person. Now when we see that, when we see that this is pointing to Christ, how can you not respond in love? 
And not just an act of love, but a life of love, of, of worship. And that's what we see in the woman's life. She didn't care about anything going on around her. She didn't care about what people thought of her. She was forgiven and she needed to worship Jesus. What a beautiful example. Now, one last question as we come to a close. What is the connection between forgiveness of sin, right, as Jesus mentioned that, and saving faith? Your faith has saved you, go in peace. Right, those are the last words in verse 50. She believed him. Whatever words Jesus spoke to her, whatever sign he showed her, whether it was personally or something she saw in his teaching, she believed. She believed that he was able to forgive her sins, and she believed that he did. Her faith that his words are true and that his forgiveness is real brought about that salvation. And now the call for the one who is saved is to rest. That might be the only thing you need to hear this morning. There is rest in Jesus. This isn't a go-do-better sermon. I'm sorry if you've heard those. This isn't a he cleaned up your life, he needs to keep it clean or else kind of sermon. Go be at peace. Because once we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, we can experience true peace in this world. It's because we have a peace that will keep us, that won't be shifted or tossed and turned by what's happening around us. We are found sure and steady, secure in His grace and His forgiveness. And not only in this world, but a peace that will remain with us in the world to come. And so I have to ask, do you believe? Now if you're walking with the Lord, but your love has grown cold, I pray that you've seen Jesus this morning. That you realize that his forgiveness and his love has no comparison in this world and that it would compel you to worship him. And to live your life for him. That looks different for different people. There might be a, a renewed strength to fight against sin and temptation that comes against us. That might be being more open, more generous with the things that God has given you. It looks like spending time in his word but you are living your life focused on him not all the other things that are distracting I pray this morning that you hear his words of assurance that you are forgiven now for those who have never believed listen closely there is forgiveness in Jesus and in Christ alone he alone is able to forgive you, and not just forgive you, but restore you. Remember with me that the creditor forgave both of them, right? The 50 and the 500. Both the self-righteous person and the prostitute need forgiveness. And it can only be found in Christ. And so like we're saying, I pray that you would look to Jesus, to come to Jesus, and you would find rest in him. Dear friend, look to the one who proved his love for you by dying on the cross. Believe that he has the power to grant you salvation 
and to free you from your sins. Respond this morning in belief and love and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. And Lord, I trust and believe and know that there are people struggling here this morning, struggling with sin, struggling with doubt. Father, would you, would you strengthen them? Would you heal them? Would you help them to fix their eyes on you? Would you lead them to repentance? And Father, for those who are carrying a heavy burden, I pray that they would lay it down this morning and finally look to you. Lord, we recognize this is a work that only you can do. So be glorified in this time. We pray all these things in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.